Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprim. Pope Francis begins his pilgrimage of penance in Canada. A fatal crash involving a snowplow on the Red Hill Valley Parkway will not result in charges. If we want to attract better city councillors, should they be paid more money? Find out what competition manipulation is and how sports organizations plan to tackle it. We bring you to the floor of the San Diego Comic-Con and with Shark Week underway, find out what makes them so fascinating. The GMH Podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton Podcast on 900 CHML. This apology would allow us to forgive and not to forget, but ensure that our new journey uh, was a way for us to rebuild our communities and to work with the church, if necessary, to rebuild our communities. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. The voice of Treaty 6 Grand Chief George Arcan Jr. as Pope Francis has arrived in Canada for what he calls a pilgrimage of penance. Many Indigenous people expecting an apology from the pontiff today for the Roman Catholic Church's role in the residential school system. Uh, by all accounts, that will happen but is it enough? Shannon Moore is a professor of child and youth studies at Brock University and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton. Shannon, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on. There are some really mixed emotions with the Pope's arrival. Some Indigenous peoples have said they want, they need an apology. Others are saying it really won't change anything. These mixed emotions are certainly understandable, I would imagine. Absolutely. And it's a very individual experience, the experience of receiving an apology and engaging in any healing or repair or forgiveness, if that is to be. The Good Morning Hamilton Twitter poll question today is asking our listeners to answer this question. Does the Roman Catholic Church need to do more than offer an apology for its role in Canada's residential school system? Your thoughts on that question? Absolutely. Um, If Truth precedes justice if we want any form of healing. And if the goal of this apology or this, this role of the Pope this week is for healing, then there needs to be uh, truth and there needs to be action um, attached to uh, what is said. So what kind of action should be anticipated, if any? Uh, ultimately, the answer to that question of what might be effective would only come from First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities and those most directly impacted. But the actions that we can have insight into that might lead to some healing and uh, positive change going forward are already articulated in Truth and Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada's calls to action from 2015. And if you have Wi-Fi, those are easily attainable through the Internet. And there are calls to action for all Canadians. But specifically for the Catholic Church, um, beyond the apology on Canadian soil, which was called for, uh, we can also uh, look to other aspects of those calls to action to know a way forward. First and foremost, we have to understand the truth. We do not understand the full truth of what happened in residential schools as of yet. We need an opening of all the documents and all the archives within uh, the Catholic Church in order to begin to discover and understand that truth. And then that truth must be communicated. It must be communicated to clergy, 
those making decisions within the church, and there needs to be an understanding within the Catholic Church community as to what that truth is. There also needs to be a greater understanding for all Canadians, and that truth needs to be communicated and facilitated. Well said. Shannon Moore is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Shannon is a professor of child and youth studies at Brock University. We're talking about the Pope's visit to Canada. What we should not lose focus on is the fact that thousands of Indigenous children were ripped away from their families to make them more Canadian, whatever that means. Many never made it home. Many more were scarred for life. The path to healing isn't as easy as accepting just an apology, is it? Uh, Absolutely not. Um, It is articulated in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission call uh, report that indeed there were acts of genocide conducted by the Catholic Church, other churches, and uh, the Canadian government in this process. And so this is, um, it is important to understand that there are many dimensions of abuse committed within these schools. There was cultural, emotional, physical, sexual abuse. And uh Taking that into account, the act of actually engaging healing from that is profound. It is excruciating. We have well, uh, we have one more minute. Sorry to interrupt, but we know that the Pope is going to visit. Uh, well, he's in Alberta now. He's going to visit Quebec. Andy Callowit. Do you expect an apology in all three stops? Um, I I would I would expect that, and uh, I would hope for that. We shall see. Shannon, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Shannon Moore is a professor of child and youth studies at Brock University, joining us to discuss Pope Francis's visit, uh, historic visits to Canada, his pilgrimage of penance, as uh, he will apologize. We are expecting sometime today for the Roman Catholic Church's role in Canada's residential school system. But she hits the nail on the head in terms of more action, those archives, those documents that the Church has about the residential school system, I believe have to be handed over to Indigenous peoples here in Canada. This is a part of their painful history in this nation. It's going to allow them to heal and reflect and remember and pay tribute to those who underwent those uh, heinous actions at the hands of the church and many more organizations who had a hand and individuals who had a hand in those residential schools. Uh, We also heard from a residential school survivor, Mary Mitchell of Edmonton, who says that the Pope's apology will bring her and many others uh, closer to that closure they need. Welcome the Pope to come and talk and apologize to our survivors so that we could begin our journey of healing and that we can begin the opportunity to change the way things have been for our people for many, many years. As actually Chief Archand, here is Mary Mitchell. I can forgive the Catholic Church, and I can um, tell the others that there's healing in this reconciliation. There is healing for it, for us as um, Indigenous and individually and, and uh, as a whole group. Uh, Mitchell attended Holy Angel School in the northern Alberta community of Fort Chippewyan for nine years in the 1960s. And Adam North Pagan from Edmonton is the president of the indigenous charitable group known as the Legacy of Hope Foundation, which supports survivors of residential schools. 
and says that um, Pope Francis's apology earlier this year at the Vatican was one thing. Having him do so in Canada is going to be far stronger. It gives the opportunity for a lot more of our residential school survivors across Canada, as well as all those that have been intergenerationally impacted, to be able to bear witness to an apology that we're hopeful that will be a lot more meaningful. Keep it right here to 900 CHML throughout the day for the Pope's apology expected at some point uh, during his trip to Alberta. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Collision involving a snowplow that struck and killed a father of five on the Red Hill Valley Parkway last January will not, according to Hamilton police, Results in any charges. Noor Hassoun is the daughter of the crash victim, Hussein Hassoun, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Noor, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, thank you for having me. How's your family doing? You know, we're we're kind of saddened as a family that the Hamilton police were unable to press any charges because there was no law that can hold an individual accountable for hitting someone and killing them. What was your father like? How do you explain this man um you know we he we emigrated from lebanon in 2002 and by trade he's an engineer a civil engineer and coming to canada he really worked day and night he worked night shift day shift to kind of make sure that we made ends meet we made sure all our needs are met and then sooner or later he owned uh, a convenience store and from there you know we kept growing and having a father who supported all your dreams and ambitions, I kind of took that for granted looking back. But, you know, my siblings, whether it's my eldest sister, Farah, who wanted to go to pharmacy school in the States, he supported that. My older brother, Mohammed, who wanted to pursue a business, a drink called Prickly, he supported that. I wanted to go to UFT and live in Toronto. He supported that. My younger sister's in medical school now. He supported all of our dreams and ambitions. And my youngest brother, Ibrahim, we all wanted to do different things. And now he's in business and we're moving on and forward. But we all started with dreams that he supported fully and worked with us day and night to get to where we wanted to be. Sounds like an amazing guy, and I'm sure that uh, you miss him dearly. There's no doubt about that. You mentioned police um, last week announcing that no charges are going to be laid. It didn't mean didn't meet the legal threshold to lay mm-hmm. a charge. Did that make you angry? Did that make you um, uh, resign? How did you feel about that? Well, it's just because, like, wh- why are we sitting here making it like a statistic or like some sort of metric that like an incident needs to meet like since when did the final result not matter when they say like they can't prove negligence and it didn't really they verbatim said like it doesn't really matter what the final result is if the driver is saying that they did not know they hit someone then there's no law in canada in the judicial court that they could use to hold someone accountable is disheartening because it's like it's the same institution that's supposed to protect us is the same institution that killed my father so whether it's a city contracted snowplow that is contracted by the city to protect hamiltonians is the same vehicle that killed my father and then the institution that's supposed to protect my father's right and life 
is also the same institution that failed my father. So whether that was Hamilton General Hospital with the ER doctor not doing a proper initial exam and advising the police that my father's injuries were non-life-threatening, so they dissolved the scene, which means they couldn't collect all the evidence that they should have. Or Or at this point, the judicial system that basically says if you claim that you did not know, you can walk away scot-free regardless if you killed someone or not. Hmm. One city councilor says your family should at the very least get an apology. Is that something that you want? An apology, we want recognition. We want accountability. That's what we want. An apology is nice, but an apology isn't going to bring my father back. And are you or other... We want changes at the end of the day. We want laws changed. We want changes because this isn't the first snowplow accident that has caused a death. And Noor, are you or your family thinking about launching a class action lawsuit? Is that in the cards? Yeah. And will that be in the next several weeks, do you think? That's already in action. We are just, you know, we are in the motions because technically the police investigation isn't officially closed. And for us to kind of get the ball rolling, we need that investigation to close for us to uh, uh, continue with a civil lawsuit. And is it also your hope that maybe this law changes a thousand percent like at the end of the day we're not out here uh you know looking for vengeance or revenge or anything like that we need a change because you know at some point the amount of people that are victims of snow plows is ridiculous the hamilton spectator launched um like a few it was like a week ago where they showed the amount of people that have been killed by vehicles vehicular homicide at this point crashes and snowplows is beyond us and as hamiltonians we shouldn't stand up and say you know what at at the end of the day the weather in hamilton we're always going to get snow in the winter and that's never stopped any canadian from leaving their house snow in the winter is nothing new for us heavy snow is nothing new for us we've always depended on snow plows let's say to clear the way for us to be on our way to go out to our jobs and you know maintain our livelihood and for us to sit there and say that that same vehicle that's supposed to protect us uh, protect us is the one killing us we need to either put dash cams in the vehicles why are there no dash cams and snow plows why are there no further training for drivers to notice when they're hitting and killing an individual it's all great points. Noor, uh, my condolences to you and your family. Uh, hopefully uh, the law gets changed. That will be another fitting legacy to your father amongst all the great things that he did. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. That's Noor Hassoun, the daughter of crash victim Hussein Hassoun, who was killed by a snowplow on the Red Hill Valley Parkway last January. No charges will be laid in the case, but as you heard, the family plans to file a class action lawsuit. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. We know a municipal election or elections across the province will happen Later on this year, October 24th, to be exact, as uh, people here in Hamilton will vote for a new mayor and 15 councillors, as well as school board trustees and the like. Uh, Everyone, I always say this, everyone is quick to criticize city council when something goes wrong. Hey, no, council's got to do something. Mr. Mayor, Mrs. Mayor, what's going on? Do something. Help us out here. But if we want better councillors, shouldn't we be paying them more money? Well, you might not think that's the case here in Hamilton because they, they get paid pretty well. But across the province, there's a lot of part a lot of part-time councillors. They don't really get paid a lot of money. Writing about it in The Conversation, 
is Zachary Spicer, Associate Professor, School of Public Policy and Administration at York University, who joins us now. Zachary, good morning. How are you? Morning. Uh, the title of your article, If We Want Better Municipal Politicians, We Should Pay Better Wages. You can check it out on theconversation.com. It takes a particular person to want to be a city councillor. It's a pretty tough job. Absolutely. Um, it's a massive job, aside from sort of the, uh, the formal tasks that we often see, see councillors do. So debate at council, um, listening to members of the public present. Uh, there's also reviewing uh, a number of different reports, making sure that you're you're uh, that, that you're informed about various various issues happening that that will come before council. There's also a big informal part, which is um, meeting with constituents, going to different community events, making sure that you are present uh, around, around your ward. So it is a big job. It is incredibly time consuming, um, and a lot of people um, you know have have a hard time balancing every every uh, aspect of it. Given that it's a full-time job, but considered part-time in many municipalities and they get paid as such, do you think that fact has kept a lot of good candidates away? Yeah, absolutely. So here here in Hamilton, obviously, uh, our councillors are full-time. Um, it is definitely a full-time job here. Um, but if you travel uh, just a short distance outside of Hamilton, you're going to count, you're going to encounter a lot of part-time counselors. In some cases, counselors uh, get paid a thousand dollar a month stipend or something along those lines. Sometimes a little more than that, uh, but often not very much because it is considered generally a part-time position, even though it is really not right. That there is still a ton of demands placed upon the, upon the time of these of these part-time counselors. Um, there still is committee meetings. There still is council meetings. There still is piles of reports to read. And then there still is tons of different community events and tons of different constituent inquiries. There's a lot of work to do. Um, the challenge, of course, is that they're not paid appropriately. Um, and so as we move outside of Hamilton, we tend to see uh, councils that are older, uh, typically male, uh, and typically white. And so uh, not to say that um, uh, that having people like that on council is necessarily a bad thing, but there is a tremendous amount of homogeneity as we, as we move outside of larger cities. And that's one of the troubling signs that you uncovered is the, the makeup of many councils in this province don't necessarily represent the community that they serve. No. Um, the average age um, on, on most of these uh, councils is 60. Uh, 75% are men, um, and only 2% identify as a member of an ethnic minority group. So uh, typically we are seeing a lot of homogeneity, and part of this is, is, is because you, you, you need to have uh, you know, another source of income and you need to have a lot of time. So, those, so the people who, who tend to serve on these councils uh, tend to be either independently wealthy um, or retired. And so you are not just getting people from you know, a certain age group, but you're also getting uh, folks from a certain income background as well, which doesn't create a lot of diversity in policy because you're not getting a lot of diversity in viewpoints. Zachary Spicer is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Zachary is an associate professor, School of Public Policy and Administration at York University, and we're talking about uh, better pay for councillors to get better council people. Is uh, Would that work? Are we seeing some evidence elsewhere that if we pay these councillors better, we get better results? Well, um, typically we, we get representation in Canada pretty cheap. So if we look um, across the country, 
Um, there doesn't tend to be a lot of difference when you look at rural councils. Even in some, even in some uh, larger cities, pay tends to hover around the $100,000 mark, which um, I think for a lot of people, we would say, you know, that's a good amount of money. A lot of people earn a lot less. Um, but uh, in, in some larger cities, um, that isn't necessarily enough money to, to buy a house or anything like that, right? That, that, there, that there's lots of people out there who uh, would actually be taking a sizable pay cut to, to run for council. So I think a lot of people sort of look at that and say, I'd love to serve, but uh, I'm unwilling to either interrupt my career um, or I'm unwilling to take, a, say, a $20,000 pay cut to actually do this job. So I think that there's a number of things that we can do um, to ensure that, comp- that, that uh, compensation levels uh, keep pace with inflation and uh, cost of living, right? One of the things that we could do is we could time to sort of uh, um, yearly pay pay increases for staff, something along those lines, to make sure that we're not stuck in this sort of stasis, right, where, where we're really kind of afraid to sort of t- touch the subject. Politicians don't want to make it seem like they are, you know, bailing up to the, up to the bar and taking more than, than they deserve, right? But the reality is that um, councils across the board in Canada, for the most part, even in large cities, probably underpaid for the work that they are doing. Councillors in Hamilton earn just uh, north of $97,000. Those in Toronto are above $120,000. I'm sure many of our listeners are thinking, geez, that's got to be enough. Uh, I pay uh, enough in taxes already. I'm going to pay a little bit more to pay them more. Will paying them more lead to better, uh, uh, a better city, a better community? Yeah, I think it's um, it's definitely co- like kind of a controversial argument. I'm sure there's people listening right now going, "This guy is off his rocker talking about <laughs> paying more than a, more than a hundred thousand dollars for a counselor." Um, but the the reality is, when we look at salaries and wages across an entire uh, city, um, the vast majority of that is staff. Uh, and I'm not saying staff should get should get paid less, but um, council salaries are are a fraction of that, and so. Um, what I think we, we really need, need to focus on is finding out what would be an appropriate, uh, an, an appropriate salary for the role. And right now, it is a tremendously exhausting role. Um, and where I think is that a lot of people just sort of look at it and they go, not for that amount of money, right? Um, and so uh, I think we need to sort of work on, 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 on bringing newer people into the conversation. And so are there doctors, nurses, teachers? Are there professionals? Are there accountants? Are there business people? Are there economists? Are there people who may be earning more than than $97,000 right now um, who would love to serve but just can't afford to take the pay cut uh, because they have a young family at home or something along along those lines? So um, I'm not saying we should jack it up considerably, but I'm saying let's have that conversation and let's not shy away from it. Let's not be afraid to sort of talk about what we are paying politicians in this country because right now we're getting representation quite cheap. And so I think that that creates a barrier for certain candidates to to consider running for council positions. So let, I'm just saying, let's have the conversation. It is a great conversation and a great debate. Zachary, appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. No problem at all. Take care. Zachary Spicer, Associate Professor, School of Public Policy and Administration from York University. You can find out and read his article on theconversation.com. The title is, If We Want Better Municipal Politicians, We Should Pay Better Wages. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Competition manipulation. Have you heard of the term? 
If you haven't, you might want to pay attention because you have probably noticed if you've watched TV or um, in particular have a sports app, you know, one of the networks or maybe a you have a, a fantasy baseball team and you have one of those apps, you will probably have noticed the plethora of betting commercials. It seems like every time you turn on the TV, one company or another is asking you to download their app, get in on the game, get in on the fun, and place your bets. It's here, there, and everywhere. And it really exploded earlier on this year when single-game betting was finally allowed legally here in Canada. For years, we've had ProLine and Sports Select and all those um, uh, avenues to place your bets, but now you can do so per game, bet on one game or one thing within a game. I mean, the, the, the possibilities are endless. But the term competition manipulation is now being bandied about because, well, there's a lot of attention being paid to sporting events and the betting scene. And so competition manipulation is any attempt to control the outcome of a competition or alter the natural course of a sporting event or part of it, i.e. cheating or making sure the results is what you want it to be for those betters out there. Think of the 1919 Black Sox scandal in which the Chicago White Sox who were more aptly named the Black Sox that year, because they, still to this day allegedly, they threw the 1919 World Series. Well, why did they do that? They just felt they weren't being paid enough to win baseball's ultimate prize. So they threw the series to get paid on the side. Because they were heavy favorites going into that series against, I believe it was the Cincinnati Reds. And they threw the series. They could have easily won that series. They were the most talented team in baseball, but they were broken up. Eight of them ejected from the game, including uh, probably the most famous one, Shoeless Joe Jackson. And so the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sports and the Canadian Olympic Committee have partnered on a pilot project to, to dig down deep on this competition manipulation. Can they somehow prevent it? Can they come up with a theme or uh, some kind of project to identify when it happens, why it happens, and what should happen to the individuals who are responsible for it. So this pilot, which is already underway, it actually kicked off last month and goes until December 2023, is going to deal with a number of different avenues. Obviously, it's going to develop and implement a policy which leagues and jurisdictions and agencies can exhibit. And this isn't just for top-level uh, leagues like the NHL or the CFL or the NBA. This will be filtered all the way down into uh, your child or your grandchild's hockey team or baseball league or whatever the case is. There's going to be an education component as well, including an e-learning course. And in-person sessions, uh, sessions, that is, for staff and board members of all these different agencies that run sports leagues. There's also going to be a, uh, a module that will represent how participants can report these kind of suspicious activities. So imagine yourself being on, I don't know, a junior hockey team. 
and you notice that a couple of players are talking about getting paid on the side or wagering on a particular outcome. Well, that's going to obviously raise some eyebrows, and there will be a reporting mechanism in which officials can receive complaints or reports or allegations, and they'll do their due diligence. Monitoring and investigations will follow as well. It's a really intriguing idea, and it comes at a time where, as I mentioned, sports betting has absolutely skyrocketed. And so I, I, I agree that a lot of attention should be paid to this competition manipulation. What comes out of the pilot project and how leagues implement it will be uh, really the, the important part of this. We know, we know we have sports. We know we have sports betting. As of right now, at least for the last little while, you know, we've had the Pete Roses of, the, of our lives, uh, the, the Black Sox scandal. There has been many a boxing match <laughs> thrown so that person will get paid or betters will get paid. When it comes to the league implementation, I'm eagerly anticipating how these leagues are going to go about doing so. Because on one side, they're getting money and investment from these sports betting apps and websites. On the other hand, they have to maintain the integrity of their specific sport. Because if there's one itty-bitty smidge of illegal activity, of throwing games, that can knock a league uh, or a team, as we saw in the 1919 Black Sox case, um, knock them out. That would be a death knell and would be hard to recover from. So one thing to keep in mind when you hear of competition manipulation, that's what's going on with the Canadian Center for Ethics in Sport and the Canadian Olympic Committee. And from an Olympic standpoint, yeah, that, that's a great place to install it as well because we're talking about, for the most part, amateur athletes. And they don't get paid a lot of money. What happens if they decide to throw an event or throw a game? Um, it'll be interesting to see what comes out of it. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Comic-Con International returned to San Diego this weekend to an in-person gathering. Yeah, for the first time in a couple of years. And boy, did the people gather, including our next guest, Rick Lee, program manager of Y108 and Energy 95.3. Rick, good morning. How are you? Good morning, San Diego. I think you need to <laughs> trademark that. Good morning. I don't know. <laughs> hey, you've been, doing... going, you've been going to San Diego uh, Comic-Con for like a decade. How did this one compare? Well, first off, I was going to say, Rick, that the weather, it was a lot cooler than it is in Hamilton. Still is. Wow. Which is, that that's unbelievable. And I was just like, um, how did it compare? It was a different Comic-Con, but the people were out. It was over 100,000 people. And there was a mask mandate. And you had to show proof of vaccination just once. So you just had to get an orange wristband once you showed that proof of vaccination. And it was a free-for-all after that. So they really did a good job with them, uh, maintaining that mask mandate. Social distancing, <laughs> physical distancing was not a thing here because of 100,000 people. I was going to say, Rick, that just um, I just wanted to just give you uh, some sort of vision of how big this mm -hmm. conference is. Because with the Hamilton Convention Center by Carmen's, basically... You could fit 33 of those buildings into one San Diego Convention Center. Wow. So just think of that space. And they still think that they need more room here for the for the convention. And it, it's just, I call it Nerdvana. <laughs> it's just nerds converge. But I think everybody at this point, it's 2022. Everybody's a nerd. If you binge watch something, if you collect something, if you even watch a popular movie, you're a nerd. 
basically. Yeah. <laughs> so so this, this might be a tough question for you to answer, but mm. what is the best thing you saw? You know, I I thought I was going to see monkeypox or COVID, but I didn't see that. I didn't see nobody <laughs> dressed up like that. Uh, I think the best thing I saw for cosplay was just the amount of effort every year. It just seems like people know how to put so much effort and time into their costume. You see it a lot when you if you go to the Toronto uh, convention with the uh, with the comics, and you see some of those costumes, and just amplify that a bit it, it seems like there was a lot of star wars a lot of deadpool um stranger things everything just run the gamut then you'll know they were here uh people weren't as dressed up as before you would think that they would be because there is a mask mandate and it'd be easier to wear a mask <laughs> with the mask on yeah. but you know um uh, yeah i just i think uh for for costume wise there were a lot of impressive costumes and the the beauty of this is they love people love dressing up because they feel like celebrities and that's the beauty of that where people just stop people and say can i take a picture of your costume and wow i was dressed cool. up as i was dressed up as rick zamper and so on <laughs> oh you got a lot of people coming up to you I'm oh sure. yeah <laughs> our guest on good morning hamilton on 900 chml is rick lee program manager y108 and energy 953 and uh now in his uh 10th plus san diego comic-con as we mm -hmm. relive some of the excitement in san diego there was uh, fairly big announcements here, there, and everywhere, including one from the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And what we hear is there's more new movies on the way. Oh, geez. I think Marvel did take over. And think of this, Rick. People were lined up to get into this Hall H. So Hall H is the biggest conference room here in San Diego, 6,000. And people were lined up for this hall two days before they were spending time outside in the sunshine in San Diego to get into this one panel that was only an hour long. Wow. <laughs> so it's, in, it's insane how people are just still at this point gobbling up everything that Marvel's doing. And like you said, we're into phase five, they announced, and phase six. Uh, you would think that uh, they would only announce by year, but they just went. And the thing is, they don't want to show all their cards because of the fact that there's D23. There's another conference in Anaheim. And, you know, with Anaheim, Disney, Marvel. So that's what I'm seeing a lot, that the, the bigger studios are withholding some of, some of this stuff, too. Um, and I'm seeing a lot of streaming services. Oh, my goodness. There was a floor. Netflix had a booth here. Paramount Plus had a booth here. It's, it seems like the trend is shifting towards streaming. And... Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but it's there. <laughs> of uh, of all the Comic-Cons you've been to, and you've been to several now, do you mm. have one highlight, whether that was meeting an idol of yours, uh, seeing a top-flight celebrity, or, or the cast of a TV show or movie? What would be that number one thing of all the Comic-Cons you've been to? Um, well, Conan O'Brien, uh, he just recently retired which is just <laughs> what conan yeah. retired so he's no longer doing his late night talk show but he used to uh do his late night talk show here in san diego just off the sites uh, off the convention center it wasn't inside the uh convention center but it was like a little ways off meeting him and going to his shows that i think that would be a true highlight and um i think just just everything you know i think every every year is a highlight and even though this is three years removed because of, you know what, Comic-Con didn't happen. It happened online. 
And I hope that a lot of people did take in that ConCon at home because that just YouTube that and they'll give you a sense of what the panels are all about here. Um, they did they did do like a, uh, a shortened Comic-Con. It was like a smaller Comic-Con. It's kind of kind of what the first Comic-Con was like back in 1970. And that happened during the American Thanksgiving. But this was the true return of Comic-Con. And I just love the fact that people can come here get blisters on their feet, which I did, <laughs> 20,000 steps each day, uh, which I did. But I just I just love the fact that there's something for everybody. Whether you're into comics, you can go to the comic panels. Whether you're into movies, which I am, you can go to the movie panels. Television, uh, there's just things for every everybody. And it seems like here at Comic-Con, everything is, that's presented here, you'll see about five months down the road. Unless you're Marvel, then you get like a two-year preview of what they got planned. <laughs> it is the uh, epicenter of, uh, well, pop culture, uh, nerdum, uh, everything under the sun in terms of movies and TV and everything that we're going to be talking about over the next several months and years. Uh, Rick, thanks for the time. Safe travels home as well. Let me know if you need anything here, and I'll put it in my carry-on. <laughs> <laughs> Good stuff. Thanks, Rick. <laughs> okay, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. I think his carry-on is going to be stuffed. Rick Lee, Program Manager, Y108 Energy 95.3, returning from Comic-Con International in San Diego. It's unbelievable. Over 100,000 people going to that event. And that that descriptor that he used, take 33 Hamilton Convention Centers, and you have the San Diego Convention Center. I mean, that is just absurd. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That music makes you think of one thing. The movie Jaws and Sharks. And today marks the start of Shark Week. Sharks are fascinating and amazing creatures. And we are going to... Talk about it with our next guest. Vanessa Scarillo is a marine biology honors student at Dalhousie University and joins us now. Vanessa, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Why are we so fascinating by sharks? Well, I think your introduction music is a, is a big part of that. A lot of us have been first exposed to shark from the movie Jaws, and I think, unfortunately, that has played a huge role in, in how we view them, right, and in, in fearing them. But I think today... A lot more people are becoming more curious about them and wanting to change their way of thinking about sharks, which is really, really exciting, especially with things like Shark Week that are starting um, today, actually. What should we know about sharks? We, we, we see these massive creatures. We see them in the movies chomping on people. What should we know about them? Yeah, there's that's such a, a big question to answer. But I think more for the general public, I think it's important to know that they're incredible animals that are so important for our oceans. They're a big part of keeping them balanced and, and regulated and healthy. And I think we should just really shift our perspective in terms of seeing that um, they're not mindless animals out to get us, out to attack us. And we shouldn't let that fear govern our love of spending time in the ocean. Um, they're incredibly calculated, intelligent animals. And they've been around for millions and millions and millions of years, way before us. And um, I think it's important that we learn to coexist with them in a way um, that makes it fun for us while ensuring we're always providing an optimal environment for sharks, given all the threats that they're facing today with things like climate change and, and 
overfishing and things like that. One way you're doing that is by tracking sharks in Canada. What have you found so far? Yeah, so um, I'm not personally tracking sharks myself, but there's a lot of great science out there um, to see, you know, to learn more about them because we really don't know that much, especially right here in Canada. Um, So I'm living in Nova Scotia right now, and what the science has been telling us is that there's a a more or less stable population of white sharks that tends to return to Nova Scotia from July to November on average, primarily to feed uh, on seals. And, um, you know, this information wasn't really known a few years ago even. So it's been in the media a lot, and a lot of people are talking about the shark, the fact that we have more sharks here, and I think that's super, super exciting. So, um, you know, they've been here for a while. I think we're just getting better at tracking them, and also people know what to look for now since we're talking about it more um, in media and, and on, online, which is super exciting. But we do have sharks here. We have white sharks. There's basking sharks, blue sharks, a lot of sharks, actually. And, um, you know, science is doing a great job at understanding how we can protect them and just like I said earlier, keep providing an optimal environment for them. The most well-known shark, thanks to the movie Jaws, is the great white. Do we have great white sharks in Canada? There are, yeah. So like I said, right here in Nova Scotia, there are some white sharks that tend to return. Um, this is this is really incredible. You know, white sharks are a very elusive species. Um, not much is known about them. They, they migrate all over the world, actually. And We've actually never recorded a white shark giving birth, you know, so I think it's very cool that right here in Canada, we can find these incredible animals. Um, But, you know, it's not a cause of concern for beachgoers. Uh, The numbers are still incredibly low and the the, the odds of encountering a white shark are still incredibly low. But they do tend to visit from some parts of the year um, to feed on those seals, which we have a lot of. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Vanessa Scalero, a marine biology honor student at Dalhousie University. We're talking about the start of Shark Week and why we love sharks so much. You mentioned climate change earlier. How has climate change impacted what sharks do on a year-to-year basis? Yeah, so there's a few theories. I think right here in Canada, one of the things that might be happening is the fact that the waters are warming and this might be creating a northward shift in the migratory patterns of white sharks. So they might be coming up here because it's uh, more within their range of optimal temperatures, in addition to other important factors like, um, you know, the fact that we have an abundant population of their favorite food item and other things like uh, really successful conservation measures that have been implemented in the United States that have been allowing their populations to rebound slowly um, in the last, last few decades. What should someone do if they do encounter a shark, whether it's in, I don't know, Nova Scotia or Australia or wherever they are? Yeah, you know, step one is is don't panic, right? I think in any situation when you start to panic, it takes away from your ability to react in a mindful manner. Um, but I think the best thing to do is to just keep your eye on that shark. They're masters of stealth. We need to keep that in mind and to let it know that you see it. Um, avoid frantic move it, movements like yelling and excessive splashing because that might stimulate the shark further. Um, you'll want to observe its behavior. It might just be cruising by, but is it circling? Does it have lower pectoral fins? And ultimately, you'll want to maybe just try to 
use that to inform your judgment and see, well, should I be exiting the water calmly and doing that with, you know, as much low energy and noise as you can while moving cautiously. Um, if ever it does come close to you, which again is super rare, you'll want to just create some buffer space. So if you're surfing, maybe you'll want to use that to create space, use your surfboard to create space between you and the shark. Um, or if you're diving using your GoPro. Um, but, you know, again, that's very rare. And just remember that sharks swim by people every day and, and nothing happens. Um, and, you know, you shouldn't let that prevent you from getting in the water, enjoying the activities you love most. So I think it's just about being a little more mindful and aware while you're in the water and before um, getting in the water and knowing your environment, especially if you're uh, conducting activities around areas where white sharks could be found, like uh, near seal colonies or things like that. Do sharks have good eyesight or a sense of smell? And can they determine whether they're uh, going after a, a human or a seal or, or whatnot? Yeah, so there's a few studies that investigate that. A lot of times, if bites do happen, um, they're because of mistaken identity. Um, again, this is very, very rare. You know, sharks are, they do have amazing eyesight and, and really great sense of smell. So it's not its not because they're silly and they don't know what they're doing. <laughs> Unfortunately, they don't go to school to know what we are, right? So <laughs> they're very curious animals and when these things do happen. It's because, unfortunately, a surfer's outline could resemble that of a seal a lot when sharks are looking, especially white sharks are looking from below up in the water column. So things like that can happen. But, um, you know, their sense of smell is very acute and their eyesight is is really amazing. Actually, white sharks tend to see in, in shades of, of gray, right? So um, they see outlines really, really well. So they're not seeing colors like we can, but that makes it efficient for them to use light to hunt and things like that. So they're, they're adapted to their environment and to hunt. But, you know, when things do happen, it's really mostly a mistake um, because, once again, these animals are very, very calculated and there's usually an energy cost to, to going after prey, right? So they usually discern whether or not that's worth it. Very interesting stuff. Vanessa, really appreciate your time today. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. That is Vanessa Scalero, a marine biology honors student at Dalhousie University, telling us all about sharks. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.